What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of board games, picture books, and art. Our first guest is Brian Calhoun, and we'll discuss his board game and upcoming picture book. Then we'll talk to Linda Palma, a museum educator about art literacy. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life in the library. Along with our interviews, we'll have a special Easter-themed story time with a review of Egg and talk to local children about their favorite books. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. As a children's literature specialist, I'm all for books. But the reality is that in today's world, you can't escape electronic media. The constant stream of media surrounding children certainly creates some challenges for adults. Without a doubt, there are some very valid concerns about children's engagement with media. But even as we face these challenges, it is important to remember that there are some positive things about media as well. Take, for example, media's ability to teach children problem-solving skills. There is a wide range of children's television shows that allow children to solve hypothetical problems right along with their favorite characters. From everyday problems like sharing toys with friends to less common ones like how to deal with the death of a pet, seeing characters tackle these problems can help children develop confidence to solve their own problems. The benefits can go beyond personal problems as well. For example, one study showed that watching a mathematics-based television show led to improved performance for fifth graders in solving all kinds of mathematical problems. The effect here is also not limited to television. Video games also show some interesting connections to problem-solving skills. Another study found that playing computer games improved 14 to 16-year-olds' performance on computer-based educational tasks. So adults can connect to some of the positives of electronic media by building on the problem solving they portray. Taking these teachable moments and extending them to the real world by watching or playing together and then discussing the concepts or issues encountered afterwards creates adult-mediated media time that may be just the thing children need to make them the critical innovators of tomorrow. And that's a little something to think about straight from Rachel's world. Rachel's World. Life can get pretty busy, but every now and then there are a few moments to take a break and relax. What do you do with that time? Do you read books, play games, or hang out with friends? How about creating a new board game with your friends? Today, I talked to someone who did just that. Innovator Brian Calhoun is on the phone to talk about his board game, Chick-a-Pig. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. Brian, this is so interesting to me that you have created a board game. I, I think sometimes we think about, you know, the board games just existing. And the fact that you are a creator of one, I think, is so wonderful to introduce to our studio audience. So to start out, tell us a little bit about how did your board game come to be? Um. 
Yeah, well, I will say it's interesting to me that I'm a creator of a board game, too, because I uh, never thought I would be and never had really aspired to be until it all of a sudden sort of happened. Um, and I was, what about five years ago, I was playing a game with, with some of my friends over the holidays, and I just remember it being a really boring game. And, you know, I, I'm not a gamer. I'm, I don't play lots of board games. I enjoy chess. And then, like everyone else, you know, play some games around the holidays. And I think it's a great time to sort of spend time, a great way to spend time with each other. So I was playing this boring game, and I read the size of the box, and it said they'd sold like a gazillion copies. And, and I was just joking, but I said, this is crazy. You know, I'm going to make a board game. And, of course, they were like, no, you can't do that. And uh, a few months later, um, I just started thinking, like, I wonder if I could make a board game. And, you know, you know I wonder if I could make a board game my friends would play. And just kind of got that in my head and was started uh, envisioning the way like different pieces could move around a board and that type of thing. And then one day, just driving down the road, I kind of saw the way that these two pieces that would eventually be hay bales and chicka pigs could uh, coordinate moving together and went home and cut out little pieces of cardboard and grabbed an old chessboard. And, and that's kind of how it got started. That's such a delightful story that this is just something that came out of a natural experience. Centered around your game is the beautiful character of the Chickapig. So where where did that character come from? Again, you know, so much of Chickapig, it wasn't like this long thinking about how it was going to all work. It was more once I actually got to, you know, cutting out paper um, and putting it on the board, it was you know, I was envisioning playing this game with my friends on the weekends. I was like, okay, how can I make this funny? And, you know, thinking about all the different critters and, and, and Chickapig was the first one that we, you know, sort of uh, that I put on to paper. And then the cow quickly followed and, and it was just sort of instantly like there should be a cow and it should poop on the board. And, <laughs> and it was all, you know, no ambitions of like, this is going to go to market, but just you know, how can we have fun this weekend when I, you know, show up with a board game? The cow also, I'm glad you mentioned him because he he gets involved in the game very strategically here um, to to prevent us from doing things. And I love that you've taken kind of that real context of, you know, animals poo and it's messy and it gets in our way to to involve that. I, and I also like that you mentioned the humor of that, because I know when I was playing with my family, every time we would get a poo card, it we would just laugh and have so much fun. Is is that something that you were really looking for, too, as you created this? I know you've mentioned your friends, but this kind of social aspect of the game, why why was that important for you to have that as part of this game design? Yeah, I mean, this, to me, the social aspect of a game is sort of what how what defines how good the game is, you know, in in many regards. Um, I I do play a lot of uh, chess, or I have over the years, but out outside of chess, if I'm playing a board game, I don't want it to be the type of board game that that my head is stuck in, and I'm you know only thinking about what I'm going to do next. It's more like a board game is a common thread and excuse to hang out with your friends or your family or, or or whoever you're with. I mean, it's a social experience. And 
with Chickapig, I wanted it to be have some strategy, but I did not want it to be the kind of thing that you had to sit there. Like I wanted you to be able to talk, whether it's about the game or you know about the weather or what happened yesterday. I think that's really the most important part. I mean, it's about kind of having fun and being with who you're with. And with the pooping cow, I mean, everybody laughs at that. Um, and I, you know, in, in the first times we tried it out, I mean, especially with kids when they get a chance to, you know, put a poo in the path of their parents. I mean, he doesn't laugh at that. <laughs> and that is one of the things I love, particularly in the context of our show here at Worlds Awaiting, is is this bringing people together and family. This is something that kids can enjoy and adults can enjoy all at the very same time, which which makes it just absolutely delightful. You also mentioned the strategy of it, and you mentioned chess. I found it very chess-like, and I read on the box, even there's a quote that you have there that, you know, it's a great way to kind of start that strategy for learning chess. That kind of strategic Mm -hmm. element that you wanted to put in, why do you think that that is particularly important for a board game as well? Yeah, you know, the the game started with adults in bars. And well, you know, this is after after a summer of playing with my friends and sort of, you know, just for fun and then deciding like, whoa, you know, we could maybe turn this into a business. Then we went to bars here in Charlottesville and we had a weekly game night and it was drinking and it was having fun. And then it, it, it slowly and very naturally found its way uh found a home amongst children because people would take home prototype copies and their kids would play. And then as more and more kids played, um, we sort of changed where we were doing our our focus from instead of adults in bars, we actually started introducing the game to schools. And we had um, just in Charlottesville alone, like a dozen schools that integrated the game into their system, whether it was rewards, you know, for for doing good or inside recess, or we had, you know, it in language classes um, where, you know, you play a game, but you have to speak in a different language. But all of a sudden I started getting so much feedback from these teachers of this game is actually like really good for our students. It introduces these kind of critical thinking skills of needing to look ahead and play offense and defense, you know, at the same time. And, and at, while at the same time sort of in, uh, focusing on social skills and, that did a few things for me. I mean, for one, it just made me get behind this project a lot more. I mean, up up until then, it was still kind of, you know, since it was it's a side project to me, it was sort of silly and, you know, kind of funny that I had this random game on the side called Chickapig. But when I started getting feedback from parents and teachers that it was really good for their students. It, it just changed my perspective on it. It's like, wow, this is, you know, this is actually doing a lot of good in the world. And, and we even got like great feedback from the Virginia Institute of Autism when we took the game in there and just had, and we heard back from the headmaster that their students were not playing video games during their free period. And instead they were sitting at a table together and playing this game and interacting with each other. And it, it was just sort of mind blowing to me it, and, and made me fall in love with this on a different level. 
I truly appreciate that as a teacher myself. I think being able to combine this wonderful social element and the strategic critical thinking element is a magic combination. And you seem to have hit that perfectly here in in such a delightful way. And I'm so glad to, to see that you're getting great feedback on it. How have others received it? Have you get, gotten other feedback outside of the realm of teachers? What What is the reception to this beautiful game? Oh, it's just been great. I mean, it, it, it's scary to put something new into the world and to sort of put your name behind it. And, and you know, in a way, your, your friends and family are your toughest critics because you know, a lot of them don't mind telling you that this is a terrible idea or this is boring. Um, but but then sort of after winning over approval of the people around me and people in Charlottesville, I still was just like, gosh, or just is somebody that picks this up off the shelf going to like it? And really the reviews that have come in have just been overwhelming. And, and you know, we've we've gotten a few awards. We got, to a total surprise, we got nominated for a 2019 Toy of the Year Award. We got officially recommended by the uh, Menza Society. And we're just kind of continuing to get good feedback from, you know, uh, adults hanging out with their friends, you know, uh, having a few beers to kids playing by themselves to my favorite categories, you know, families, kids playing uh, with their parents. I love it. It's such a wonderful thing. So tell our listening audience where they can find your game. Um, well, the game just released nationwide in Target, which we're very excited about, but it's also on Amazon and, you know, hopefully in your local toy store. And if it's not, you should... Uh, tell them they should get it. Yeah, go out and get it because it's it will make for a fun family night or friend night to get together and enjoy just a very fun game. Brian, we have to take a quick break, but we'll get right back to our conversation after story time. Today, in honor of Easter, we have Gene Nelson of the Provo City Library with his review of Egg by Kevin Hankus. You know, as I was just thinking, as I cracked open this little picture book that's written for the youngest child, uh, it's very much like the cracks of these eggs because it just opens up with this beautiful, beautiful watercolor. I think Kevin is a marvelous illustrator and author for, ch- for the youngest child. And in this story, we have four different eggs, and they're all different colors, and three of them start cracking. But the fourth just stays uncracked. And before we know it, we have three little chicks that come out of those eggs. They happen to match the color of the eggs in, in beautiful watercolor pastel colors with pink and yellow and blue. But the green egg continues to sit uncracked. And they all say goodbye, the three chicks, and they wander off and fly away. And meanwhile, the reader and the rest of us are waiting, 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 waiting for this green egg to hatch. Well, finally, the three chicks come back, and they're wondering what's going on with this fourth egg. And a lot of this is told with some writing, but then some of it is told very much in a wordless fashion. Almost a graphic novel in a comic form with a lot of panels. And finally, they're sitting there listening, and they start... They get very proactive, and they start pecking on the egg from the outside of the egg because it's not working. The egg isn't hatching. They peck, 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 peck. And we have a whole page of pecking 
until finally the egg starts cracking and out comes a little baby alligator. And these three chicks, birds, their eyes get huge and they fly away from this alligator. They know better than that. Well, poor little baby alligator is very lonely. He doesn't have any friends and and Kevin used the words alone and sad and lonely, miserable. And he's pretty miserable. And the three chicks come back and they circle around and start to wonder, okay, could this work out? And the pink one lands on the alligator, then comes the yellow one, then comes the blue one. And they're all sitting on the back of the alligator and they're friends. And then they start, he takes them down the water, gives them a little ride. And as they're kind of looking at the sunset, they see the sun going down. And all four of them see the sun going down. And then they start wondering about that sun. And it kind of changes its shape from round to a little bit oblong like an egg. And we're wondering, is that the end of the day? And, of course, that egg then hatches uh, a beautiful peach-colored chick. It's just a perfect little book. Uh, Very soft and quiet. Not a lot of action, but it's just a very, very quiet book about friendship and uh, being patient. I love it. This is Worlds Awaiting, and I'm Rachel Wadham. I'm on the phone today with Brian Calhoun, creator of the board game Chickapig. Brian, you've created a new picture book that expands your board game into a larger realm. Tell us a little bit about how that came to be. Yeah, so so the picture book happened just recently. I I mean, I wrote it last January, so it's been sort of a very quick and exciting process. And as I mentioned, the board game was this slow, you know, four or five year sort of grassroots, you know, we weren't really starting thinking that this was going to be a big, you know, brand or, or get it, you know, outside of the local area and, and weren't trying to. Um, but as it, as it grew and grew, I would always notice when, you, when I'd see, uh, when we'd, we'd have the game set up at festivals or we'd see pictures, and when children were playing the game and, and it's marketed to eight and up, and, but sometimes we see some six- and seven-year-olds, but I'd always notice these younger brothers and sisters um, you know, really young kids, like laughing at the characters, laughing at the cow, laughing at the chicka pig, saying chicka pig. And I, and I started to think, gosh, we need a chicka pig something for this younger generation. And, and I, and I always had like game ideas in mind and, and, and all sorts of things. And then one day, one of my good friends called me up and said, Calhoun, you need to write a children's book about chicka pigs. And just out of the blue, she was unhappy with sort of the current book selection that she had at her house. And it was like somebody turned a switch, and I would, all of a sudden I was like, whoa, you're, that's exactly what I need to do. And, and I had sort of daydreamed about writing kids' books years ago, and but had never really taken it seriously. Um, and I've never written anything really in my whole life. And But I started brainstorming, like, what would be a good story here to tell? And... Um, and then I just one weekend just wrote this book, um, and and uh, it's just been really exciting. You know what's happened with it since, and just developing it has been really fun, and it's introducing something else into the world that I'm proud of. And I think you know in in this 
case has a has a message that I think is really good for children to hear. I would agree with that completely. The message that you have is that you can have a dream and you can follow that dream, even if that dream isn't something that everybody around you has. And I think particularly for kids today, that that is is such an important message that you bring that you bring to the table. And for this unique character, the Chickapig, um, he is just such a delightful little character and that he has this wonderful dream and sees how other people might achieve that. This is interesting to me because this was a dream you've had. You've you've said that you've had this dream for some time, but this is not necessarily the path that you take. Your day job, you create uh, instruments. You make guitars. That's correct? That is correct. Yep. Um, I uh, got into it as a hobby. I was a guitar player growing up in bands, you know, since middle school. And uh, I actually dropped out of college my first semester. It just wasn't for me and still didn't know what I wanted to do. I was in a blue, I was a guitar player in a bluegrass band at the time. And I thought maybe I'd, I'd go down that road. And on the side, I was building uh, instruments as a hobby. And I sort of took on a couple of these informal apprenticeships and I just loved it. And then, and then all of a sudden, you know, I thought, gosh, maybe I could turn this into a business. And, and everybody around me, uh, besides a few, said, you can't do this. Uh, in fact, even my, my, the guy I started Rockbridge with, you know, at the time I was, I was about 21, and he was, you know, 15 or 20 years older than me. And he was like, you can't build guitars for a living. And this, this, guy, Randall Ray, um, a great instrument builder, had been building a few guitars a year as a hobby for, you know, a decade before that. But, you know, we did, and we turned it into a business. We incorporated in 2002, and it's just been this wonderful business. And I think it sort of, in a way, is far as that is from Chickapig, I mean, you couldn't be uh, farther directions apart. The similarity is I started both of them not thinking I'm going to make this a business. It was like, I'm doing something I really like to do and, you know, I'm having fun with it. And, and so it's, it was sort of pure and I had joy in it. And then after a while it sort of turned and I was like, you know what, you know, other people would like this too. And I could, I can, you know, make a career out of these things. That too, to me, is a wonderful foundational message for children that I think comes out in your story and in the Chickapig book that that you really, if you're passionate about something and you want to do it, if you love it, you can do it, right? It, it's not that you have to that you have to worry about what other people think or worry about how you're going to make money or how you're going to do it if you love mm-hmm. it and that passion. So I love that you bring that passion to everything you do, whether it's building a guitar or creating a board game or a children's book. One of the things I do love about the book is that the text is very lyrical and it has a very strong kind of musical sense to me. It rhymes and it has a very strong rhythm. So as you were writing, do you feel like your your musical experience and background was influencing that? Yeah, I mean, I would say so. I mean, the, the book almost has like a chorus type of feel to it. Um, um, you know, if if you read it, there's sort of one phrase that's repeated several times through the book. And I, I guess I was thinking of that as a chorus. I mean, I wasn't necessarily singing it when I was writing it, but just the stanza of it, I mean, something about songs that stick in your head, I, you know, I did want to have that type of flow. I mean, 
the, the fact that songs stick in your head is just sort of a beautiful part of music, and you know they stay with you after you've heard it. Um, you know more so, I think, than you know just reading a page out of a book. And it ends up too being very read aloudable, is my way I say it. It it makes a wonderful kind of sharing book, which I think adds to that that beautiful connection. Talk a little bit about the illustrations for us. What? How did you approach that, and um, why did you use the style and context that you did? It's so delightful and has such a, a beautiful addition to the book. So, talk through your thought process with the illustrations for us. Yeah, so the the book is co-illustrated with myself and another Charlottesville, Virginia resident, Pat Bradley. And we had worked with Pat when we started doing marketing for Chicka Pig, the board game. Um, and he is a he does animation, and he did these great little promo animated reels that I worked with him on, um, and then in, helped with the instructional video um, on on YouTube. And he and I just thought he did a great job, and I really enjoyed working with him. And he would let me come in with sort of storyboards and say I, it sketches, and then he would sort of take them and turn them to life. And that's what happened in the book. I had I had everything written out, sort of almost like a poem and you know I knew nothing about writing children's books so I was online I was like how many pages should they be you know what what how many words on each page I mean I've sort of had that all figured out and I remember I I on I drew out um all 16 spreads and then I kind of storyboarded it I sketched it all out and some of those characters in there have been drawn since I was since I was in middle school, I was a big Far Side fan. You can probably tell from looking at it. <laughs> it, um, it does have that influence. And, I can, yeah. Yeah, and and once I had once I had it storyboarded, I took it to Pat, and then you know he he refined it and just really brought brought everything to life. And then and then um, I would just look over his shoulder as he like kept developing it, and you know be able to say, oh, let's make this eyeball bigger. And, you know, we just worked together really well. So it was a a lot of, you know, going over to his house and looking at his computer and then him working on everything in in a collaborative process. And it became a beautiful project product in the end. I, I really do love all the characters, and and I don't think I'm spoiling anything to note the the wonderful addition of the cow on every page. Was was that something conscious that you and Pat put in, that you decided to, to include the cow as part of every illustration? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think I think um, I don't have any kids myself, but I have nieces and nephews, and my my it was my mom or my dad or someone said, you know, they have to read a lot of uh, books to their grandchildren. And they, they said, it's nice when there's something else the kids can like point at, you know, and they sort of gave me that idea. And I remember being a big Where's Waldo fan. So I just thought, well, here's something, you know, here's this cow. And, and the other thing is the cow is such a critical point of part of the board game. I don't know how he's going to be introduced into this storyboard uh, world yet. Um, and in a way, by hiding him, I, I didn't have to tell his story yet because he could still be a big part of it without like 
you know, saying what his whole deal is. And so it sort of served those two purposes at once, kind of a where's Waldo and also uh, let me think about, you know, what kind of character the cow's going to be in this chicka pig world once we get to it. Because what the book really did is it took these characters from the game that had no story behind them and and it's sort of making a world and 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 really changing the vibe a little bit from the game like the marketing behind the game the chicken pigs were sort of dumb farm animals running into things with you know living on a farm with a farmer where the book very much changes that and and the chicken pig is kind of the human of the land and they have feelings and thoughts and you know you know, teaching good morals and that type of thing. And so I don't know how the cow's going to pull into that yet. And I'm uh, still thinking about it as we sort of expand this story. So you mentioned that there's an expansion. So can you describe a little bit about what's coming next? Well, we we already have another board game coming out. We haven't we haven't really announced it yet, but I can tell you here it's going to be called Chicka Piglets, and it is very different from Chicka Pig the game. It's for more of a preschool, you know, audience, three year olds, that type of thing. Um, but in addition to that, you know, I'm I'm thinking about other books. You know, I'm daydreaming about about TV, and it you know I don't really know yet, but um, all of the you know, sort of how quickly everything has come together is definitely opening up a lot of doors for this brand. Brian, thank you so much. I truly appreciate you sharing your inspirational story about following your dreams and finding something you love, whether it's making guitars or making board games or making picture books, and then also sharing your creativity with us through two great mediums of, of board games and of picture books as well. I truly appreciate this opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. This is great. I really appreciate it. Brian Calhoun is the creator of the board game Chicka Pig and author of Little Joe Chicka Pig. Now, let's hear from some local children about their favorite books and why they love to read. What is one of your favorite books and why? Um, I like a book named Ambulate just because it's all like action graphic novel. I like because of one Dixie. I like Harry Potter. Me too. Why? What's what's your favorite part about Harry Potter? Uh, I don't know all of it. <laughs> I like Candy Shop more because it's kind of fun and there's different like it kind of twists a couple times in it. My favorite book is Far World, and that's all to say because I have. Problems, but um, because it's about adventures that people can't see, but so somehow Sophia can. And I like Dork Diaries because it's sort of funny. I like James and the Giant Peach because um, I just think it's cool that he gets to see like all the bugs and the big peach and things and all the things he does. What makes reading fun? Sell me on reading. So I let's say I'm your friend and I think reading's boring. Why would I want to read? There's not just one book that you have to like. Like there's multiple choices that you could find and one of them might be the one that you like. Because, well, you can learn different things from different books and in chapter books you can imagine all the things that are going on. Like so when you end a series you like oh man. So then you can just get finding a good series and be like, this is way better 
and stuff. <laughs> so, yeah. I would tell them it's full of mysteries and... It, it depends. There's all kinds of books for different personalities and stuff. Because some books are, like, exciting and, like, twists and turns. And some books, like, leave you on the edge. And then you have to get the other book to see what the ending is. They leave you on a cliffhanger, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I like it because there's all different kinds of books, just not one choice to read from, like, fantasy and novels and I would probably say, like, um, okay, you don't have to like reading. It's fine. But I will, I can say I don't like something like, probably like math, for example. <laughs> but if you, but deep inside, I know you like reading. It's just you don't want to say you do. <laughs> Art is a wonderful way to express oneself. It can be messy and colorful. It can also be clear-cut and monotone, and sometimes it's a mixture of both. Art can help children define who they are and who they want to be. However, sometimes there seems to be a disconnect when our children walk into an art museum. They may stand in front of a piece of art for a moment and say, that's beautiful, before walking on to the next piece. I have with me in studio today, Linda Palma of the BYU Museum of Art to discuss this issue. Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much. You know, one of the things when I think about children's literacy and the activities that involve all of the literacy activities we do, the reality is it's really about a conversation and conversing with the world around us. And one of those literacies that helps us do that is is art literacy and learning to understand it, making it more of a dialogue than just standing in front of a lovely painting and saying, oh, that's beautiful and moving on to the next one in a museum. We really want to start this dialogue. So how can we start doing that? How can we start taking that experience with art a little bit deeper for our children? Well, in the first place, you are right to use the word dialogue. It is not a monologue. And I tell this to our docents, our volunteers. I tell this to our student employees at this university museum. You never talk at people. It is a dialogue with them. In fact, this inquiry-based methodology of asking questions to deepen the to deepen the discourse is extremely important when working with children as you're standing in front of a work of art. One of the things I think is important, too, is this whole idea of articulating what you are feeling. If you ask a child to to say, uh, you know, encourage them to talk about what it is they're seeing or feeling, and, and, and of course there are better questions than 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 that. But but just just these basic questions that you can ask of starting in looking at the work just superficially, starting to look at the colors or the or the narrative or the story behind the work or what they think it means, but getting them to articulate it, I think, is extremely extremely important. We know for example we have we have children write in their journals or 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 write an essay because articulating those ideas clarifies those ideas in their own mind. It helps them to not only express themselves, but it also 
helps them to come to know how they really feel. So many times when you say it, you understand how you're really feeling for the first time. Language is, is extremely important to the visual arts. It's not just viewing, it is articulating. So how do we make those good questions? I think that's a really important thing to consider because it's not just to about saying, how does this work make you feel or something like that? We really want to get deeper here. So how do we make those good questions to help us get to that deeper level? Well, analogical teaching and learning is of paramount importance. That is knowing your audience and recognizing the kinds of questions that you can ask that will be uh, have a certain synchronicity with their own lives. If there's a point of departure, if they understand it, you know that if they're in fifth grade, they're they're learning about uh, U.S. history. If you can if you can pull that into it, or if they're kindergartners and they're learning about their primary colors, what whatever it is that they are doing in school or at at home at that particular time in their lives. If there's a superhero that they like and you can relate that to the work. So drawing that analogy to something that is meaningful to them, I think, is the first inroad to it. I also think that that creative listening on the part of the caregiver, the parent, the, the, the teacher, the, the mentor, the, the docent, uh, I think that kind of listening where you are acknowledging that what the children have to say is of value. Of course, this is just common sense. All of us educators know that, that giving children's views validity and substance and making them feel valued is an important part of of their art experience and that also it should be fun however you can make that work of art fun also the narrative oh how do i choose which works of art to show in an in uh, a tour the ones that have the best stories behind it the ones that will make the kids giggle and laugh and for for example, in an origami exhibition that we had, um, one of the things that I was trying to get the children to recognize is the amazing things that you could do with a piece of paper. In fact, I would hold that piece of paper up and say, what is this? Oh, it's a white piece of paper, blank, boring, not much to it. And yet, these origami artists will do the most amazing and fascinating things with this simple little piece of paper. And then I ask them, where do you find paper in your life? Where do you use paper every day of your life? Oh, candy wrappers and gum wrappers and and paper towel and what their sandwiches are wrapped in and toilet paper. Well, all you have to do is say toilet paper and those little first graders are just giggling all over the place. Why not? Whatever makes it a little more fun for the kids and again, relates it to their everyday experience. I love that way of looking at it because it should be fun. It should have this sense of playfulness and engagement as we move forward with that. But, you know, I think sometimes adults in particular are a little bit intimidated because they think they have to have the answer or they think they have to know all about the art in order to do that. So how can we approach a piece of art, particularly with kids in our lives, if if we feel a little bit intimidated at 
buy it ourselves. Well, one of the nice ways to get around that is to ask them questions. <laughs> Therefore, you don't necessarily have the answers. What you're trying to do is have them come up with their own answers based on their own realm of experiences and their own interests. And then, of course, the next question is when they say, okay, well, what's your favorite color in this work? Well, that's a simple question for a, quite a young child. And they say, I love the color red. Then the next question is always, why? Because once you ask why, they have to they have to come to terms with their own aesthetic. They have to come to terms with their own feeling. Why do I feel that way? It's it's so fascinating to watch children and art as an introspective experience, as they look into themselves, as they come to define themselves more by the way that they look at this work of art. I think that's important. We don't want to have the answers. We want them to to create their own answers. I love that idea of that Socratic method of bringing birth, giving birth to an idea that's already inherent somewhere in there, or, or Michelangelo and his marble, that Already in that marble, according to his platonic views, already in that marble is the image. And it's just a matter of tweaking it, chiseling it, teasing it out of the marble. In a way, I think that's what children are when they're in front of a work of art. Tease those ideas right out of them. And, of course, the the, the key is finding ways to do just that. And I think naturally children are just more less intimidated by artwork because they have that natural inclination. I think sometimes as adults, we've kind of built that out of us where we think there is a way to respond. And, you know, we have to, we have to be the critic or, you know, write the analytic essay <laughs> that, that or, we might have. <laughs> right. Or to yeah. carry that further, adults think that art should be a certain thing, that it should be, for example, representational, or that, oh, you know, you have heard so many times, I hate to even say this, but, oh, I could do that. You, you know, that, that kind of mentality, whereas children will come upon a work of art, and they're, they are ready to accept it as such. They're not questioning its validity as a work of art. What they want to know is how to, how to work their way into it, how to, how to understand it, how to deal with perhaps abstractions, how to deal with, with things that aren't clear-cut. You know, I love that about art, too. Because there isn't the right-wrong answer, children learn, and in fact, adults learn as well, that there aren't always the right or wrong answer, that things aren't always black and white, that you can't compartmentalize everything, that there is a subjectivity that is allowed in certain instances. I also think it's important to point out that there are different ways of learning. Of course, with Gardner's theory of of the various types of intelligences, multiple intelligences, we have to recognize that different children learn differently. Some will learn kinesthetically. Some will some will learn visually or or orally. Uh, it it it. You have to find ways to 
to help all of these children to recognize art through their own particular modality. And I think that that just, oh, it takes experience. It takes a lot of working with children in the galleries. And we get creative ourselves in learning how to, how to enable that kind of learning and engagement. And I think that's a role that parents can play because parents know their children better Absolutely. than anybody. And being able to connect that if you see particularly these kinds of visual needs, learning needs within your children to engage them with artwork in this way, just will extend their ability to engage with the world on a broader level. Absolutely. I think that... um, as we approach these kinds of things and as we think about these these kinds of deeper things, uh, I think there are certain kinds of art like abstractions or, or things that maybe cultural abstractions that we don't completely understand. So how do we as adults kind of get past maybe some of our hangups of, of definitions of art to tap into that more childlike view of what art is. Well, with my humanities classes, I I do something pretty silly. Um, I got it from a book, oh, just so many years ago, and thought that it was, I tweaked it along the way to, to work for me. But what I do is I put up on the board two nonsense words, mulabaloob, and Ikipinski, and I have the, the, the um, students in the class actually say those words, these nonsense words. And then I draw two non-representational forms. I draw one that looks a lot like a cloud with rounded edges, and I draw another one that looks kind of like an, a lightning bolt. And I say to them, which word goes with which non-representational form. And of course, they always get that Ikipinski goes with the lightning bolt and that Mulabaloub goes with the cloud structure. Now, they know that intuitively, but then we get into this discussion of how they know because of the sharpness of the Ikipinski and the sharpness of the lightning bolt and the organic roundedness of Mulabaloub and the cloudy type of, uh, of, of form. But once they understand that they are dealing with abstractions every day of their lives and understanding them on some level, or that they are dealing with symbols or types of things that they're getting all the time. They see the Nike symbol, for example. They know without a doubt what that is, or the golden arches. There are symbols, signs, abstractions all over in their lives. Even... even um, uh, non-tonal, atonal music that some people find so difficult to listen to. Have you ever heard just the soundtrack of a horror movie? It is all nothing but atonal, discordant, or at least, you know, that we'd consider as such. It's, it's all around us all the time. But what we haven't learned to do is place it within a context that, that we can manage it. That, that in, in other words, we can only manage it in certain contexts, and if taken out of that context, we're lost. We have to recognize that these things are around us, and we recognize them, even if we don't realize that we do. So much of this is intuitive. And that's a great thing to remember, that this really is foundational, and it the experience is there, even if we don't think it is. So it's about starting to build that kind of culture of artistic appreciation in our lives. And even as adults, if we don't feel like we have that, 
it's all about practice. It is, and it's all about openness and 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 that that humility, I, I guess you might say, to still be teachable even as as an adult. And in fact, especially as an adult, we should be as we we look at our children, we learn from our children as much as they learn from us, and so. Allow yourself then to go into an art museum and learn from your children. I think that that's a great way to look at it because I, I've done that before. I'm sure you have taken mm-hmm. a child into an art museum and they've seen a work of art in a new way that I think, oh, wow, I, I didn't really notice that before or I didn't really pay attention to what that is. Well, you know, I shadow my students' tours for that very reason. They think I'm just trying to do the quality control thing and make sure they're doing <laughs> everything uh, uh, according to our our uh, template, although we really don't have such a template. But but I, I shadow them because every time I am on one of their tours, I learn something new, whether it be from the docent or from a, a member of the tour group. And I think that's one of the things in this whole conversation about dialogue with art. We have to understand that everybody's dialogue can be significantly different. It, it can indeed, and very personal and very subjective. And that's one of the things that engaging with groups just makes it so much better because we can see it from other people's perspectives. and We can, and recognize to appreciate their perspectives as well, even if they aren't our own. And I think that that is one of the most important things that viewing art and engaging with art does in our lives is helps us to see other people's perspectives and have that appreciation. It's a democratic endeavor, certainly. I love that. That's a that's a perfect statement to end on this beautiful democratic dialogue <laughs> of art that we're we're engaging in. Thank you so much Linda for helping us see this more clearly. My pleasure. Linda Palma is a museum educator at the BYU Museum of Art. Now, join me around the librarian's table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. Today, I'm in studio with Megan, Emily, and Taylor, who are student librarians here at BYU, to talk about dystopian books. We're in studio today talking with Megan, Emily, and Taylor, and we are have recently been chatting about dystopian books yes. and all of the pros and cons of dystopian <laughs> books. So we're here today to share to share that conversation with you. So it started out, our conversation started out, Megan, by you sharing one that you're reading right now. So tell our audience about what you're reading. Yes, I'm currently actually rereading um, Unwind by Neil Shusterman. Amazing book. It's yeah. amazing. And the books that come after it are even more amazing. Um, so Unwind tells the story of a future America where there has been a war fought over abortion, whether it should be illegal or not. And so so the conclusion of this war was that abortion is illegal, but starting at age 13 and until age 18, parents can choose to have their kids um, legally unwound, which is a scientific process that has been perfected to where um, doctors can take every part of your body and put it to use somewhere else. Um, so kind of like organ donation to the extreme. Um, and so it's about these kids who are slated to be unwound, whether voluntary or involuntary, and what they try to do to fight for their lives to show the adults in the book that their life is worth living. And just because they're, you know, teenagers and they go through some rough, you know, emotions and they sometimes lash out, that doesn't mean that their life is um, invaluable. 
So it's really interesting. I love it because it makes me think so hard about some of these questions. And I feel like with a lot of YA books, you don't always get that. You know, it doesn't always make you think super hard. So that's why I love it. Yeah. And I I think that's one of the appeals to dystopian for me. And I think it is for you, too, Emily, this kind of sense of what we think about. Yeah. So I yeah, I was kind of thinking back about dystopian. And maybe when we think of dystopia, we go back immediately to like Hunger Games and like Divergent, like the some classic, of the ones yeah, that yeah. started or the more, was, the more yeah, re- like yeah. restarted the, the appeal. Because yeah. obviously we can go back and there's 1984. Like there's so there's so many ones that they make you read in high school. They're all like The Giver, <laughs> yeah. like right. yeah. all of them. Fahrenheit yeah. 451 yeah. are all dystopian yeah. books. And and I think even now, I think I think they're going more into apocalypse, where that still is dystopia to, in in like at the heart. I feel like mm-hmm. people pull us into these different situations where we're having to rethink our morals, rethink what we what we do. And I think the biggest thing is that the flaw, human flaws, come out like the biggest like that people struggle with. And what would you do if you were brought down to this this level, or you had to start? over like how would these things and so I really love I think that's the biggest thing that appeal to them is how it makes you think and I think that because there are so many and there have been so many I think people have to be that's what that's where we get to like oh cons maybe when you hear dystopia and everybody kind of cringes <laughs> almost <laughs> a little bit inside yeah. because it is something that is really it has the potential to be really good but if you don't really make people think or really think of something new or interesting to look at the human condition with it just becomes another one of those right yeah i think some of them some of the ya dystopians especially were just romances framed as a dystopian exactly. story mm-hmm. so the dystopian society only served to advance the romance yeah. that was going on yeah i mean is that how you feel taylor yeah. oh yeah um i recently read this dystopian novel it's called the unquiet and it's about oh, yeah. um there's like two copies of the same world and, and the people in one copy are like they've been trained up since birth to become assassins to go to this <laughs> to this other world and kill their um their like copy their copy, copy. Yeah. Wow. yeah and and take their place in that world um and it's it's really unlike any other dystopian novel i've read because it doesn't focus on the action it focuses like on the psyche mm-hmm. of what this does to um the people that are trained this way and um like their search for redemption and if they they can like come to terms with the things that they've done in the past and if they can redeem themselves from that and i just i just loved it because it um it filled this like i i was left wanting after reading you know the hunger games and after reading divergent because like you said it was just like a romance book you know right. but um and then it didn't like talk about like what killing people did to them, you know? And, but this book really focused on like um, how it made them feel and what, like, (laughs) I I don't even know if I can explain this very well, but just like if they ever thought they could rebuild their lives afterwards, you know? And so it was just really interesting. And I think so many um, dystopian novels now are, trying to get to that point because the trend of romance dystopian has kind of fallen out of fashion. So dystopian novels now are focusing more on... They're darker. Yeah, the darker side. 
Yeah, I mean, one that, that I was thinking of when we started talking about it was um, another Neil Schusterman. Yeah. Um, his newest book called Scythe, and it is very dark it and is, very yeah. violent. I mean, which, I mean, even though Unwind is is dark and violent, this goes to a slightly different level. It and, I, you know, they're becoming darker and they're becoming more psychological. Mm-hmm, I think definitely. that's a great way to describe it. They're they're moving away from that into the more kind of psychological realms, which makes it more interesting, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the best parts of these books is that they reframe the same questions that we've always had about the human psyche and about how we respond to really harsh environments and how we respond to trauma. But they're like putting them into new and interesting um, environments, I guess. Which I think is what is the benefit of this genre, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. that's, you know, when I when I talk to people, I tell them, you know, the benefits of dystopia and the benefits of science fiction is to help us see the real world through the imagination. Yeah. And you can take things to a real extreme in the imagination that helps you things see things so differently than you can if it's really grounded in the real world, right? Definitely. So that's where it takes us is to this really cool place where we can explore stuff in a way that we couldn't if we just had to stick to... To, real to reality, world, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when you actually can kill people off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, or you can yeah. do some of these kinds of things like mm-hmm. have an alternate world where, you know, yeah. you have, there's uh-huh. lots of really cool things you can explore. So, right. so some interesting stuff here. Very cool. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank Megan, Emily, and Taylor for coming around the librarian's table with me today. We've had such a great show. We first had Brian Calhoun talk about his board game and then his new picture book. Finally, we spoke with art expert Linda Palma about how to increase art literacy with children. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us.